All right, so let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll uh, dive into our lesson tonight. Father, we uh, I feel somewhat like all I say every week is the same exact thing when I pray to you, and thank you for the opportunity, but um, I pray that we would not take it lightly that we have the privilege in our American culture and civilization to carve out time with no uh, worry or concern of retaliation from uh, our government or the people around us that we could come and we could um, listen to your word be read that we could pray together that we could encourage one another in the way that we live and I pray that we would truly be thankful for such an amazing privilege that we're not having to hide in our closets at home um, to read your word that we have multiple copies on every conceivable gadget and device and paper copy that we can think of. And so as we come to you tonight, help us to be grateful. I pray that it would stir us to love you as this lesson is all about and that our discussion would be profitable and encouraging and ultimately even that your spirit would use it to convict us to love you more. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we learned or were reminded about five functions or five uh, roles that the Holy Spirit plays in facilitating and encouraging and making possible our relationship with God the Father. We said first that the Holy Spirit regenerates. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life to us as spiritually dead sinners. And that gives us an ability to have a relationship with God and to love Him. Not only that, when He regenerates us, He enters our lives permanently. He takes up residence. He makes his home within us. Then we call that indwelling. But he doesn't just sit idly in our hearts and just sit there for the remainder of our lives. He actually goes to work. He goes to work with us in a cooperative arrangement whereby we become more and more like Christ. And we have the power because of the spirit of God's indwelling and regenerating work. We have the power to change. We have the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And that process is called sanctification, or more specifically, progressive sanctification. Fourth, we saw that he helps us pray in accordance with God's word, especially in the difficult times when we can't even get out intelligible words, when we just groan. Romans says that he intercedes on our behalf when all we can get out and muster are groans. And then lastly, we looked at the Holy Spirit's role in our relationship with God as He assures us, He gives us that confidence that we are God's children. So that was the last member of God's triunity that we considered. We looked at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and now we're in the last two weeks of the class, and I think that the last two lessons are a fitting Summary of the entirety of the semester, which has been discovering intimacy with God. It's been our relationship with God. And I think that at the very end, we get really, really simple, which is good. We get really simple because if you've ever heard of Cliff's Notes, which I tried once in college and it, it failed me miserably. Because um, I tried it for an English class, um, British literature, or English, American, I don't know, some literature class, and it wasn't British. Because I did well in British lit, but English lit, 
I totally tanked. But I tried to skirt around and do Cliff's notes, read just the Cliff's notes, not the real story, and then go take the final exam, and it didn't work out so well for me. But Jesus' version of Cliff's notes for his expectations of us do work out really well because his Cliff's notes are this, really simple, love God and love others. If I need to summarize all the Old Testament in, an, in the ethical side of the Old Testament and the ethical side of the New Testament, we can get really simple and filter everything else out by loving God and loving others. So when I'm considering X, Y, or Z, filter it through those two criteria. Is this a demonstration of my love for God? Does this comport with my love for God? Is this an, an, an action that is demonstrating love for others? And literally, if you just thought that simply about everything that you ever do and I ever do, we're going to be like way better than we are right now. Right? Because we're thoughtful about those two things. So tonight, in a very wild and crazy discussion, I'm sure, we are going to discover what it means to love God. What it means to love God. So it's question heavy, which means it's participation heavy, I hope. So don't sit there and be mutes tonight, all right? Jim, you ready? Chris, you ready? This table, which is usually quiet, you guys ready over here? All right. All right. So here we go. Number one, how have we defined love in this class? God is love. Okay. God is love. So that means we have to look to him for our definition of love, right? We can't make up our own. And he doesn't necessarily give us like the exact like dictionary definition of love, right? But, I mean, word for word in scripture. But he gives us a picture of it from which we can define it. So how could we define love? How have we defined love? Um, an act of will to reach out to meet the needs of the person loved. Okay. So an act of the will to reach out or to move in action for the good or in the benefit of the person loved. There's one little phrase that I added that I thought was important, but she almost nailed it. Mm-hmm. What? Accompanied by emotion. emotion. And that word accompanied is very careful, right? Did you cheat? (laughs) (laughs) But that's impressive that you even had it in your phone. I'm totally with you. That's awesome. You can cheat. That's great. You get an A+. So it's an act of the will. It's a decision accompanied by emotion, not led by emotion, right? Because if we're led by our feelings then we are slaves to our feelings and who as a sin sinful person living in a sin cursed world can uh, trust their own feelings yeah I mean we're all in trouble right because our feelings betray us at every turn so it has to be a decision that is accompanied by emotion never led by emotion 
or feelings that leads to action. So it's an active thing, not a passive thing. It's it's like uh, in First John three, where he says, "This is how we know what love is. Christ died." So, right, this is where we're at. Christ laid down his life for us. So we look at God for what our definition is, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. So there's action. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John's saying, it can't. So dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So this is an active love that accords with God's love. So it's an act of the will, a decision, accompanied, not led by emotion or feelings, that leads to action, it's not passive, on behalf of the object, it's for the person's good. So my original shorter definition was this, it's the sacrifice of self for the good of the one you love. It's the sacrifice of self for the good of the one you love. I like the first definition better, but this was always the one that I've had in my mind. What is biblical love? It's the sacrifice of self for the good of the one you love. And sometimes the good is a difficult thing, right? Because sometimes there we we sometimes call it tough love. Like who wants to spank their children? I mean, unless you're just an angry person and you're responding in anger, if you're doing it out of a godly desire, you really don't want to do it. Right? Like A godly parent never just has this warm and fuzzy feeling to like, yes, I get to you know, stick that rubber spatula on my kid's bum. There's no way. But we do it because we know that it's right and it's for their good their ultimate spiritual good. It might not even be for their ultimate physical good, but it would be for their spiritual good. So, with this definition in mind, the sacrifice of self for the good of the one you love, or act of the will accompanied by emotion, leads to action for the good of that object. How do we now transition that, with that definition in mind, how do we transition that to our love for God? So I'm going to give you a bunch of kind of sub-questions to tell you where I, to try to be clear with you to where I'm going in this question, okay? So with that in mind, how can you and I love God? In other words, how can we as humans make decisions to act for the good of God? To act in his best interests? So first off, we need to discuss what is God's good? Like, how could... God doesn't have a spiritual need, right? Definitely. I mean, there's nothing deficient in Him, right? So what is the good of God? Because we need to discover that if we're going to love Him. Are you asking? Yeah. So what is God's good? To be worshipped, praised, and glorified. Okay. To be worshipped, praised, and glorified. We all agree with that? For who he is. Okay. So number two then, so we need to know what God's good is. It's his glory. Then we need to know how to pursue God's good, right? How do we pursue God's good or his glory? 
Answer, what does that look like in real life? This isn't a trick question. Obedience. Obedience. Can you think of a text that would explicitly spell that out, that would demonstrate that our love for God is demonstrated by obedience? Okay, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Okay. 1 John 5, 2 through 5 says this. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Verse 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. This is love for God, to keep his commands. But it gets a little bit more difficult than that. Because John doesn't just say to keep his commands. First John 5, 3, the second half of that verse says, And his commands are not burdensome. Yikes. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is love for God, verse 3, to keep his commands, and those commands are not burdensome. Because doesn't he say, he'll he'll let nothing be in our path that he doesn't give us the ability to get out of it. And I'm paraphrasing that verse. That might be a slightly off paraphrase, but I know what you're talking about. (laughs) I'm not not saying exactly the way it's in my mind, but he gives us the strength. Oh, what's that verse? You mean the one who has no temptation that is overtaking you, but such as common to man. He will make a way of escape. Uh, yeah, it's, I know what you're talking about. Yes, kind of. <laughs> yes. So, um, my question then is, is that if you are presented with a person who's claiming, well, I love God, yet you look at their life, and their life is contradictory to that by their the way they live. What, what, I mean, what do we say about that? I mean, we, we, we obviously have to be careful because we don't want... In one respect, the Bible calls us to judge as part of the church, right? In a, in a, in a gracious judgment, right? <laughs> to not be a, a haughty, proud, arrogant judge. But what do we say to that? I mean, I mean you're known by your fruits, but... I don't. I mean, what do we say to them? Or well, I mean, like, what are, what is the appropriate way to think about that? Well, we just talked about it in community groups, and Ken talked about it the week before. Man, that's you've got your kind and compassion and forgiving spirit that you should be modeling because Christ did. But there is also a way to judge, to approach a brother with that kind, compassionate spirit in love to let them know you see something in them that could be detrimental not only to the cause of Christ but to them. So let maybe uh, make some crazy 
uh, scenario up that hopefully none of us would be participating in so that it like makes it obvious that I'm not trying to single out anyone. But let's just say that there was a particular individual in our class, and I'm, I don't know if, if anyone is involved with this. I don't know, okay? But let's say that somehow they're involved in the finances of their, their company, and they're like continually repeating over a long period of time, siphoning money somehow into their pocket, out of the books, and no one knows. So you guys, I mean, you and I would all, we would all look at that if we can, as outsiders, just looking at this scenario, and we would say, he claims to be a believer, he claims to love God, yet the, the pattern of his life is contrary to that. We can't necessarily stand in the place of, of judge and say, definitively, that person's not a believer, Right? Because we don't know that. But it should, for us, call into question the credibility of his profession, right? And it should also be shaking him. <laughs> he ought to be shaken by the seeming contradiction of his profession and his life. And likewise, I could say that to all of you and to myself included, that we ought to take an honest assessment of our own lives and say, okay, what, what is the sin? What is the idol in my heart? What are the idols of my heart that I so uh, so tightly hold on to, that I keep going back to that? Like, is there a pattern of unrepentant sin through the course of my life that I just don't give up? Because if there is, I need to be thinking long and hard about the credibility of my profession. And I'm not trying to make anyone sit there and doubt their salvation. That's just the, the hard reality and truth of Scripture that those who believe, those who love God, persevere. They, in the end, battle through it and make it in the end. But those who aren't genuine believers will fall away at some point in time because they will get entangled by sin. They will be unrepentant. They will not turn away from their sin. So it is inconceivable to think of a, a, of a believer who loves God and does not obey. They are calling, as earlier in 1 John, they are calling God a liar. Question three. I'm going to read Mark chapter 12. And here's what I'd like you to do. Think about with me, what does it mean when Jesus says that we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? Here's what Mark 12 says. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So what is Jesus saying? What does he mean when he says, love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? What is he getting at there? It's most important. Everything that you do, say, or think should be led by 
house is going to glorify God. Yeah, so we could say that he is calling us to a holistic love. He's not saying, okay, love God with all your heart. Boom, 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 boom. Love God with all your soul, this immaterial thing up there that makes you who you are. Uh, love God with your mind, so your brain and all your synapses and the neur- neurons firing and all that. Like, He's not trying to be like list in an itemized sort of way every facet of who you are. He's just saying everything that you are ought to be love for God. So let me let me tease this out on two different angles because maybe one of them doesn't make quite as much sense to to one person as opposed to the other. So the first angle is this. Our holistic love ought to be internal and external. So it ought to be inside and it ought to be outside. Internal being that of our heart, our character, who we are actually. And then external, our actions, the way we behave. I would root this in a text such as Psalm 24, where it says, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in this holy place? It's only those with clean hands holy actions and a pure heart holy inside right you look at the the entirety of the sermon on the mount i know pastor ken has gone through that i think right when we first got here uh one of the ways that i when i've taught through the sermon on the mount the ways i've kind of thought of it as a theme is that jesus is calling his followers to both internal and external righteousness it's his standard. If you want to be his follower, you have to both be righteous on the inside and the outside. That's why he starts with the Beatitudes. Here's the character of a Christ follower. And here's how that character then flushes itself out in a bunch of situations like anger and lust and, and worry and judging and so on. So internal and external. And then, maybe I could give you this. Holistic love would also be intensive and extensive. Intensive and extensive. Intensive being, speaking of intensity, that it's, it's passionate, it's, 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 uh, it's got power and fervor and intensity. So our love must be 100%. But it also must be extensive. It must extend itself to every aspect of our life. In other words, we can't just be 100% like gung-ho about God, love for God in this one category of our life. Right? So, holistic love is not a compartmentalized version of loving God. We can't just love God in in the aspect of our life, of our family life but then not love God in our church life. Right? Or love God in our church life and our family life, but not love God in the way we work. Does this make sense? So our love must be holistic, and that's what Jesus is calling his followers to, is a holistic love. All your heart, all that you are, you're all in. It's intensive. It's 100% of 100%. So all of you is 100% in. Does that make sense? So number four, 
How does this help us in our understanding of our own spiritual transformation as well as that of others? So in light of all that we've discussed about the, um, our love for God, of um, his call that we ought to live for his glory, we live for his glory by obedience, that our love must be holistic. It must be all of us, all the time, 100%. How does that understanding help us in the idea of spiritual formation, our own our own spiritual change. God's love for us is greater than that. It's, it's beyond any kind of love that we could repay back to Him. Because it came, it's coming from a perfect, holy, sovereign God. So yeah, ours, ours really pales compared to His and we're trying to trying to give back to him what we owe him in terms of love um, given all that we can give um, still isn't really what he deserves I don't think I was clear with my question because what you're saying is good but it has nothing to do with where I'm trying to go so let me try to rephrase it so our love, so no, it wasn't just you. So our love is supposed to be both an external actions, our, our actions and behavior ought to conform to God's standard, right? So there's love that's demonstrated in actions, but our, our love can't just be demonstrated in actions. It must also be de- uh, conforming our hearts, correct? So there must be external and internal love for God, correct? We're good? So with that in mind, as we progress in our spiritual life and we grow and we change and we transform, or you think of you want to help your children along in that process, how does this idea of external and internal love for God translate into the way we think about how we're going to change and how we would even come alongside of our children and help them change. Thinking externally and internally, actions and heart. Obviously, by your puzzle look, I still uh, failed in trying to lead. It's so long. It's such, it's such you, a long question. You're trying to say that, that that's how we should display our love to others as well? No. So if I'm trying to, if you're trying to help me, or if let me put it this way. So if I'm trying to help Caden, as my little five-year-old amazing kid, and I and and he goes and does something stupid, and he disobeys, I can go and I can give him a timeout and expect external conformity, right? Is that going to ultimately fix the problem? Now, it's... Yes, and what like we need to change, we need to conform externally. Yes, right? We need to do the right things on the outside. But where must my discipline of him ultimately go if it's going to be eternally productive? To his heart. To his heart. 
That's where I was trying to get. Is that mere external conformity? I got it. While while that I'll get I'll get right to you, Carol. But while I'm ex- so this mere external conformity, it's necessary in and of itself. But it's like putting makeup on a pig, right? Because you can dress up a pig and try to make it look as good as you can, but at the end of the day, it's still an ugly pig that stinks. And so there has have to be issues of the heart that are addressed. So our our aim ought to be the heart. And I think that it's important to remind remind myself as I parent Caden and Hadley, but also apply that to my own self. Right? Because I can get really angry when I'm doing home improvement projects. <laughs> and I can very easily just say, Troy, you're not supposed to get angry. Well, what is my anger revealing about my heart? And and for myself, I like to not even think about that, right? <laughs> I just like, Troy, you're an idiot. Stop getting angry. You know, but with my son, I'm like, oh well. And let's let's think about the heart, Caden. Do you get what I'm saying? So we need to think ourselves about about ourselves about the heart because that's the source of true lasting transformation, Carol. What you were saying before you kind of turned it around on yourself. I used to say this to well, I still say it, but I would say it to the other two kids. <clears throat> anyway, all four of them. Um, our heart's desire, meaning mine and Jen's, is that their heart be transformed so that they want to do the right thing. But until that time, we expect them to conform to the rules of the house. Otherwise, you're asking to not live here anymore. So when you were talking about the addressing the heart, right? I mean, until they're ready to be transformed, they have to put the makeup on the pig. Yeah. At least. Well, that's why I said that. Right. I think external conformity is necessary. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be civilized human beings. Mm-hmm. But we also have to make sure that in our parenting we're not confusing, well, okay, well, if you look this way and you act this way, then all of a sudden you're okay. So um, as one of my favorite authors has said, and I've told you this on numerous occasions, more so last semester than this, but Paul Tripp has a DVD series on parenting called Getting to the Heart of Parenting. And he has four, there's four or five, I just use four, but um, he... And, and I actually use it with my kids, and it kind of works. So, um, But I think that if I applied it to myself, it would be even better. Because I say, cause I'll, I'll, so something screwy happens, and I'll, I'll walk in and say, Hadley, she's impossible to communicate with yet. So, but with Caden, I can go say, okay, Caden, what happened? And he tells me, oh, well, you know, Hadley threw my blocks all the way down the hallway. And I'm like, how did that make you feel? It made me angry, Dad. How did you respond? Now, you see what I just did? And, and it's not me. It's Do you see what Paul Tripp helped me do? Is that, so when he says, well, I took her baby down, threw it in the living room. Now, Caden wouldn't do that. He would just, you know, wither. But, you know, so if that scenario played out, when Caden says, well, I got... I, I got angry and I threw the thing down the hallway. Well, why did you throw the thing down the hallway? Because Hadley... No, wait a second. You can't go back to, to Hadley. It's not Hadley's fault that you responded like this. 
You responded to your anger. And then you follow that up with, so how did that work out for you? <laughs> right? And it's kind of amazing. Because if I actually applied that to my own like home improvement stuff, and I'm sitting there and I'm trying to build this soffit, and I'm sitting there with cuss words flying in my mind because I'm sitting there so angry because the screws keep breaking and not and hitting knots in the wood, and I get angry. Like, well, what's going on here, Troy? You know, like self-diagnosing. Well, I'm getting angry. So what are you doing about that anger? Well, I'm swearing in my head. <laughs> Sometimes out loud. So what's that doing for you? Angrier. It's making me more angry. It's not helping me, right? But but it helps them particularly reveal the, the ugliness of the heart. And it helps would help all of us to use some sort of like system to self check ourselves to like, oh my goodness, my heart is awful. Even the most holy of us, practically speaking. We're still all dirty, rotten scumbags. Because if you were just to think honestly about the junk that comes out in your life, women, maybe it's the greed of wanting what that lady has, or men wanting this lustful thought to come true. Like All that junk is in here. And listen to what Luke 6 says. No good tree bears bad fruit, and no, or nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. From the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Yikes. So our love for God ultimately must be, and ideally, a heart that is loving or loves God that demonstrates itself in actions and behavior that is consistent with love for God. But you and I don't live in that perfect world yet. So, question five. What should we do when our feelings and our desires don't match up with what we're supposed to do. Or in other words, what should we do when we don't want to do what is right? So do it anyway. Okay, so, so okay, Betty, you're on the hook now because you answered it. So, and I can pick on you because you brought me goodies. So, but wouldn't, but isn't, isn't that hypocrisy? What? So doing it anyway? No. <laughs> and you can help her. Yeah, you can help her. You can help her. Yes. So she's saying, well, hey, I mean, you know what the right thing is to do, but you don't want to do it. Well, do it anyway. But isn't that hypocrisy? But it's obedience. No, but it's instructing yourself. So it's not hypocrisy. You're saying it is, but it's obedience, so it doesn't matter. No, it's no I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It's doing but the bottom line is, whether or not you want to do it or not, and I mean, there, there's times I wake up in the morning, I feel saved, and I let people know it. 
you know, just because I'm groggy and I've got people talking to me. But often, especially when I'm driving, because I'm not a patient driver, if I'm by myself, I will literally out loud talk to God, to Jesus. So often, I think we, we think in this realm of He's not He's not there because I don't see Him, but He's there. He's driving with me. You know, I'll often be like, I'm sorry. But, okay, but, but Jim, how does that, so, but how does that apply to hypocrisy, which I'm asking Betty about? Because you're saying, well, my insides aren't matching my outsides, but I need to do the right thing on the outside, even though my inside isn't, isn't consistent with that. Well, God doesn't call us to obedience. Only. Oh. It's like, uh, I'm pretty sure a couple texts ago I just read very clearly that he calls us. If our heart is perfect as it isn't going to be. But he does call us to obedience all the time. Okay, so Betty, why is it not hypocrisy? You just got a bunch of ammo from Jim. Because, like, training up, like, if you're doing your spiritual disciplines, if you don't want to read the Bible every day, you just don't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway because it's instructing you, it's training you, it's transforming your heart. Okay. Go, go for it. We just talked about why why you do something that's right, even if you don't want to. It's the whole concept of exercising your will to do what's in the best interest whether it be ourselves, God, or the person who's there, mm-hmm. anger is an emotion. If we're exercising our will to do what's right, not being led by the emotion of anger, that is an act. That is love. Yeah. It's not hypocrisy. It's love. I think Pastor Dorn, uh, I remember one time, and I don't know if it was a sermon or just a conversation, but... Uh, someone had asked him about, well, should I pray even though I don't feel like praying? Should I read my Bible even if I don't feel like reading my Bible? And, you know, because isn't that hypocrisy if I do those things when I don't feel like it and I don't want to, I don't have this desire? He said, well, actually, by going ahead and obeying and doing those things because you know that they are right, you're actually demonstrating that you really do want to do them even though you don't have warm and fuzzies about doing them. So I would say yes, just like I was just trying to make you think. No, I'm trying to make you think. That's my job is to give you a hard time to make you think. So I would say no, it's not hypocrisy. And our response should be obey even if our feelings don't match and then pray that our feelings and desires will match. Because over time, God willing, as he transforms our lives and he conforms us to his image, and as our love deepens and grows, our desires and feelings will align with those good things. Not perfectly in this life, but I think that that would be a good way to go about it. So let me let me throw you guys a curveball. Um so we're often comfortable with one side of this issue, but sometimes not the other. So I give you the the, e- or the 
the side that sometimes people are often uncomfortable with. But So I've never heard anyone claim hypocrisy when someone wanting to look at pornography refrains because he knows it is displeasing to God. Or to give you another example, I've never heard someone say, you're being hypocritical when you're so angry you want to beat your child, but you don't, right? So you have this strong feeling to do something, yet you know that it would be bad to to follow your feelings and you refrain. None of us are going to say, well, you hypocrite, right? None of us would look at that and say, well, is this man a hypocrite because his desires and feelings don't match each other? I mean, would any of us feel comfortable telling that person, that man who wants to look at pornography, in order to have integrity of heart, you should follow your desires and indulge in pornography just so you can be consistent? I mean, none of us would say that, right? No way. Yet, on the other end of the spectrum, though, Sometimes we're kind of quick even to diagnose ourselves as a hypocrite or be concerned that we might be a hypocrite or suggest someone else is a hypocrite when someone doesn't feel like doing what I've already listed, reading our Bible, praying every day, giving our money to the church, yet still doing it. So when there's not a feeling to do what's right, but we go ahead and do it, some t- we're, very, we're much more quick to call that hypocrisy. But I don't really see much difference. We're doing the right thing even though we don't feel like it. So would we suggest in that case that that person's a hypocrite because he goes ahead and does what he should do even though he doesn't feel like it? I don't, I don't necessarily think that's fair. I think that it's what you were saying. It is the supreme demonstration of love when we actually don't want to do what we ought to do, that we go ahead and do it. I mean, do we really think that Jesus wanted to die? No, but he did. did. Do we really think that Jesus wanted to separate himself from the loving triune relationship of of, of his relationship with his father. No. Obviously the Trinity didn't break up or anything. But but you get, I mean, there was some relational disconnect that he did not enjoy. Of course he didn't want to do that, but he did it because it was in our best interests. So there was a sacrifice of self for the sake of those he loved. Just like we ought to sacrifice ourselves, our will, ourselves, our ambitions for God's glory. That's love. And like I said, ultimately, the goal would be that as we grow, our insides match the outside. Question six. This will get even more dicey, potentially. How can... How can we emphasize obedience to God in all areas of our life, this idea of holistic obedience, without falling into the trap of legalism? How can we emphasize, and I mean practically emphasize, like obey, pursue holiness, don't do this, do this. How can we do that without falling prey to the trap of legalism? 
legalism would be doing something because you think you have to to follow a certain set of rules or things that you think you're supposed to do where the love is, that's been dis- we're describing it here or you're describing it here if it comes from the heart you do it because you want to not because you have to that's it. That's what I'm taking. You know, legalism. People uh, when they look at legalism, it's like it's like following a set of rules. Uh, you know, ladies don't wear slacks, or you know, those kind of things that people would equate to legalism in the church. Um, because being legal, is, you know, if you're le- illegal, you're not following the law. If you're legal, you're following the law. But if you truly love, you do things out of a desire not based on a set of rules. It's from your heart. But we just got done talking about how sometimes we don't have that desire in our heart, right? And so we still obey. And I think that's kind of the rub, right? Because there's if if we, we say, okay, well, we're going to only obey out of a want to, well, the reality is, is that I'm a sinner still with a sinful nature, even though I have the Spirit of God in my heart, I'm still a sinner living in a sin-cursed world with a, a broken want to. <laughs> and and so I don't always want to love God and do the right thing. So that's where I think the rub gets in because now all of a sudden is there any sense in which if I say, no, I'm going to obey, even though I don't have the want to, is that an act of legalism? I'm obeying because I know it's right, so I'm going right. to do it. Well, for equating it to parenting, like we've kind of been going back and forth a little bit, do we consider it legalistic when we don't want to get up in the night with a sick child because we're exhausted, but we do it anyway? That we, we wouldn't say that was legalistic. We're doing it because we love. Our want to is broken. We don't want to do that in the middle of the night, but we get up and we do it. We do it out of love, not because there's a set of rules that say, I have to get up and do this. I could hit him and make him get up. But. <laughs> try it. Yeah, that wouldn't happen. Well, or you spank. You spank because you have to, not because you don't. Know. Yeah, I think if you understand the whole concept of what biblical love embraces, it's sacrifice. Right. And sacrifice it, doesn't necessarily mean yeah, who's doing to? it. Yeah, we don't. I mean, the whole idea of sacrificial love is doing what you don't want to do, but you do it because you know it's what's best. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like Christ. It, it's, the whole idea isn't about whether it gives me warm and fuzzy or whether I feel like it. And, and if our hearts are right with God, we will understand this anyway because the Holy Spirit will confirm that in us when we do those things. Was Christ being a legalist when he died? Exactly. No. That is how we know what love is. First, uh, first John, chapter. Three. This yeah. is how we know what love is: that Christ died for us. It's like in the Sermon on the Mount. I believe I alluded to, like I don't know, lots of weeks ago, when we talked about God's love for us. He, his is. Remember, he's the supreme demonstration of love. He defines love. Well, he said that, hey, loving people who are easy to love, well, that's not really that. That's not, I mean, everybody does that. That's not really not love. The people that are easy to love, it's loving your enemies. 
Those are who spit in your face. Those who are the difficult ones to love, you really have to sacrifice. You really have to demonstrate genuine love for those people. And that's... So, no, I think that it, it's not legalism to obey when the want to is broken. And in fact, I would say that it's okay... I think hard work has got a bad rap in in Christian circles today. That it's okay biblically to work our tails off to be holy and obedient to God. I mean, consider what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says. The writer of Hebrews says, Make every effort. He says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. So if you just did an ellipsis, make every effort, dot, 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 to be holy. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Oh. And there, I don't believe, based on the context, he's talking about some... Uh, like justification sort of holiness that is uh, declared upon you. He is talking about practical holiness because the context starts talking about sexual immorality and other sorts of, of sins and he's talking about practical holiness in everyday life. He's saying, be holy for I am holy, like First Peter 1 says. So it is okay to make every effort to work our tails off to be holy and obedient to God. That is not legalism. Yet at the same time, we must always re- remember that our obedience, biblically speaking, cannot alter our relationship with God. It cannot alter our relationship with God positively. In other words, we can never obey enough to earn it. Nor can it uh, affect or alter our relationship with God Negatively, where we disobey so much that we lose our salvation, our relationship with God. If we are truly saved, if we have a relationship with God, we will always have that relationship with God. Our relationship with God can never change. However, as I made this distinction last week, our obedience or lack thereof can affect our fellowship with God, which is the enjoyment of that relationship. And I gave the illustration last week. I will always be Ken Fisher's son, no matter what I could, would ever try to do to change that. Now, if I acted like a wild man, that might affect the fellowship, the enjoyment of my relationship with my dad. But I will always be a son. We, if we're true believers, will always be God's children. But the enjoyment of that relationship will not always be if we are disobedient. And it will increase if we are obedient. That is not earning a status. We already got that. But that affects the relationship in the fellowship enjoyment aspect. Not the standing security. I'll get to you in just a second, Jim. Sorry. You're good. Uh, Man, I had so much fun thinking through this. All right, last one and then we'll be done. I'm going to pull up Pastor Ken. I'm going to go right to the wire. So uh, question seven of nine. How does Matthew 6, 19 through 24 help us understand how we ought to love God? This is the text where it talks about don't store up treasures for uh, for yourselves on earth. Um, Store them up in heaven. 
And then he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, what does that have to do with how we ought to love God? I think we should view every possession that we have as not our own. It's God's. So if we're blessed with wealth, it isn't our own wealth. It's God's wealth. It's, It's for God's purposes. Think of it less, think about this text less about speaking about money and about serving two masters. It says no one can serve two masters. No one can love one thing and simultaneously love the opposite, right? So our love for God is an either or, not a both and. It is an all in sort of thing, right? We love God with everything that we are. Which goes back to Jesus' statement in Mark. It's a holistic thing. It's 100% of 100%. It's intensity and it extends to everything in our life. So we are all in. We cannot, I think biblically speaking, I would, I think that it's fair to say this, that it is impossible to be able to simultaneously be pursuing love for God and love for something other than God. I don't mean something good like a husband or a wife or loving your children or loving others. What I mean is like you're pursuing your own selfish ambition, your own selfish path, or you're pursuing God's path and His obedience. Does that make sense? So you're saying it's basically what you desire. Because back to your legalism statement, I do it anyways, but it doesn't it can obedience can be legalistic if your desire or your outcome is to benefit yourself. Sure. So then, I think it's genuine. I think pure legalism is you're obeying in order to obtain the relationship, or to, to obtain a standing, to get something out of your uh, for yourself to benefit. Um, but here, this text seems to be saying. You, you either are all in or you're not in. You either love God or you love yourself. I mean, l- listen to how Jesus puts it in Luke 14. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus saying, is saying, Troy, don't hate Mallory. Don't hate Ken and Sue. Don't hate Taryn. Don't hate Caden and Hadley. He's not literally saying that. He's using this exaggeration to say, in comparison, that's how much you should love me. You're all in. You deny yourself. You take up your cross. You follow me. You abandon it all with a reckless abandon for me. So we must love God. We must sacrifice ourselves, lay down our own self-interest, our lives, for the sake of Him who has died for us and was raised again. That's genuine love, to live for His glory. Making decisions, even when we don't feel like it, to please God. That's love for God. So let's pray. Father, please help us to love You. Help us uh, to understand what that is like, what that looks like, 
and help us to make the hard, right choices every day, every moment of every day, to demonstrate our love for you by glorifying you in our obedience. In your name we pray. Amen.